Hello, everyone. This is Artemis. I just wanted to say that this is the first part of our episode with David. Uh, in this part, we talk particularly about permaculture. Uh, we start to get a little bit to the the kind of differences within primitivism regarding permaculture and other uh, methods of subsistence. We start to get a little bit into delayed hunter-gatherer anthropology. Um, but the next episode is much more about delayed hunter-gatherers. So if that's more your interest or you finish this episode and you want to finish the discussion, I'd recommend checking that out, which comes out next week. Hello, everyone. This is Artemis with the Uncivilized Podcast. Today, I have David Lauterwasser. David, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, I'm very happy that you're here. Uh, so David uh, lives in Thailand, runs his, a lawn site, if I remember correctly, runs it with a your, with a romantic partner, correctly, a kind of primitive exactly. permaculture, primitive permaculture, yes. like food garden, right? Something to that kind of extent. Yeah, it's we call it a food jungle. Uh, people elsewhere they say food forest, but our 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 ecosystem, uh, the ecosystem that we're embedded in, is jungle. So we just call it a food jungle because it looks more like a jungle than a forest. Okay, very cool. So David, I guess we can just get into it. You you know who are you? What brought you to permaculture, particularly kind of this primitive? Almost to me, it comes off as like a political permaculture, for lack of a better phrase. How? What? What are some of the foundations that brought you to this? Uh, thank you. Yes, uh, it is. You are completely right. Uh, I, we do have a large focus on the political side of gardening. How gardening can be political? We're gonna get into that later, I think. So yeah, about me, I'm. Uh, I'm this this guy from from the middle of Europe, from Germany. Uh, sometimes I say that I was assigned the nationality German at birth, but I don't identify as a German anymore. Um, I'm middle-aged, which means 30. Uh, I don't think that uh, our generation is going to get that old in the end. If I live until 60, then I'm fine. Uh, and so, yeah, I. what is there to say? I I grew up, I had... Uh, two brothers. I had very friendly, very caring, very nice, eco-conscious parents, um, grandparents who did like farming. Uh, the parents of my mother, they are basically subsistence farmers. So they had sheep and uh, bees and a big vegetable garden, fruit trees, a potato field and all that. So I was, uh, now I I was kind of put into that position early on where I was confronted with this kind of lifestyle and I always I always enjoyed it. I always really loved it. Yeah. Uh, there is the city life on one side um, and then there is this kind of lifestyle on the other side where you can just climb trees and eat fruit all day long and uh, I just liked it better. So I did grow up in the suburbs, um, but German suburbs are not that that terrible like we had a forest nearby where we could just play uh nah. so it wasn't i wasn't like completely disconnected but so yeah uh as i became as i as i grew up as i became a teenager i started like feel, not feeling very well in the system i thought it was very alienated very abstract very weird everything was just strange i didn't understand why people were doing that uh, in school they tell they tell you you gotta you gotta study hard and then you get a nice job and so i see the people with the nice job and they're also not very happy most of the time <laughs> so i think all right so what's the point of it um 
I I got into communism uh, when I was I don't know 15 I think I discovered that um, because yeah I just wanted to be somehow against the system that is already in place and so if you grow up in Germany then communism is pretty much the only opportunity uh, the only the only alternative that you are presented with right so I just said all right I guess that I'm a communist now and uh, I discovered like anarchism a little bit later uh, when I was I don't know 17 18 I got into that and I was like all right so that makes a little bit more sense than communism um now I I never really fully understood and supported all of the ideas that communism and even like regular anarchism entails like there were always some some things where I thought that that's a little strange right would that really work though is that really the right thing um, but yeah, if you if you grow up in Germany, then there is not really anything apart from that, right? So yeah, I was a leftist at that time, um, and also uh, because you know when the, the the event that kind of shaped us during the time when we were just discovering our political uh, identity was the financial crisis of two thousand and eight. So that was the time when we just started discovering politics. And so it was turbulent times. Um, there was a lot of very good documentaries around at that time that explained like how the entire system works, how the banking system works. We watched all of the classics, ne? Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth and uh, Michael Moore, Fahrenheit 9-11 and all that good stuff. Like, where you, where, you, where you just told about this story where the United States government just lied about weapons of mass destruction and they just started this huge war and we couldn't believe oh. it. We were like, all right, so those are the guys on TV that are the leaders of the most powerful countries and that's how they behave. Nah? And the same with the banking system. We're like, that's how banks work? Are you fucking kidding me? Nah? And so realizing how just dysfunctional and destructive the system is was, I guess, very powerful for me and my friends at that time. And we became super radical afterwards. And it got to the point where uh, when we were just graduating high school, um, we had this weird feeling, this uh, like like imminent doom kind of thing. Like we, we couldn't really pin it down and we didn't really have any idea why we felt like that or what it meant. Or that. We, we just had the feeling the system, it cannot, it cannot possibly exist for that much longer, right? If it is built on such a shaky foundation, then there's got to be something that is happening and it might just happen soon. Now, so we even... Um, we even joked about it. We said, like, after we graduate, if if civilization collapses, let's just meet mm. at this and that point and stuff like that. And I, we were oh, not I remember being those 100%. conversations. Those, I remember yes. those high school conversations. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You had those as well. Yeah, it was me, but it was when I was at, so I was born in 1999, and so yeah. I wasn't old enough to really comprehend the 2008 crisis in its entirety yeah. at the time. But when I got older, yes. I was very right wing in high school. But I so I came at it from like the right wing. Oh, when society called like that kind of survivalist right wing perspective, <laughs> I had a very different. Yeah. 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 I heard that on one of the other episodes that you had this brief phase of being a right winger. I, I did not have that because we Germans, you know, uh, we have a little history with right wing people. And so 
for most of us, it's not really the choice that we would like to take né? because of obvious reasons. So usually if you grow up and you are not like in a completely bad environment and people are pretty anti-fascist generally, there is plenty of fascists as well, which is uh, a terrible thing. It gets worse and worse as I hear. And I'm, I'm happy that I'm not in that place anymore because they're gaining traction now. Uh, but so I wasn't one of the fascists. I was always firmly on the other end of the spectrum. And so the thing is, I, I we, we have this idea, like civilization cannot possibly last that long, right? So uh, we had this very mature plan of, yeah, we got we to gotta build a commune, right? We got to get mm -hmm. out there and just build something. And we, were, we, were, we had no idea what we were doing. Now, me and my friends, we were sitting around, we were like, all right, so you study agriculture and you study architecture and then we need a doctor and something like that. And so uh, I didn't really know what to study after school because how how the fuck are you supposed to know what you're going to do for the rest of your life when you're 18 or 19, right? It's a big decision. And so I was, I didn't want to, I didn't want to just go and study something. So I said, all right, so I'm going to be the guy who gets a little bit of like practical experience and just goes out there and gets his hands dirty. Mm -hmm. So I, I worked for a year. Uh, after school, I was in Munich. I was in a in a big warehouse selling ink and toner for printers, which was great. Uh, obviously, the the ideal bullshit job to really hate society, and I did that for an entire year to save a little bit of money. Um, and then I was so frustrated and so fed up, and not seeing like experiencing that for a single year was enough for me to say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to spend my entire life working for somebody else, get up in the morning, do the same fucking thing every day. Nah. So I right. said, that's it. It's enough. I cannot take it anymore. And I bought a ticket to Thailand because I was like, all right, so I don't, I don't really know what to do with my life right now. It's obvious that I cannot do just the regular thing that all the other Germans do. Now everybody says, oh, you graduated, you got to get into university. But I couldn't really do that because there was nothing that really fascinated me that much. Uh, now mm. I thought about studying botany or landscape architecture, something with plans, I guess. But I talked to professors who, who taught that. And after the conversation, I was like, no, I'm definitely not going to do that. That is way too abstract and theoretical. And so, yeah, it got to the point where I just had to get away from it all. And I said, I gotta, I, I just travel through Southeast Asia to clear my head and figure out what I'm going to do with my life, the gap year kind of thing. Um, and I said, I start in Thailand. I start on this small organic farm in the South. And then let's see, maybe I'm going to stay for a year, maybe longer. Maybe I'm going to visit other countries as well. Um, and so I went to this farm and uh, I loved it. It was a very small farm. It was uh, half a hectare, maybe. And it was pretty close to the city still. But it was nice. It was really, it was like being out there in the sun, sweating, digging the soil and just planting stuff, planting trees. And we had a big pond. We, we did fishing. We could bathe in the pond every day. And so just this a lifestyle like I've never really experienced it before pretty much in cycle with, uh, you know, the sun and the moon and the seasons, and you just do whatever needs to be done in the season. You get up when the sun rises, you go to bed soon after the sun goes down. Nah? And so I touched like some kind of aspect of human nature that was really missing in my life uh, until that point. 
and I got hooked. So I always said to the owner of this project, I said, I cannot go back to Germany. It will, it would kill me, man. I cannot go back to that place. And so he said, all right, you don't want to go back. You can just build a little hut in the back and uh, help me with the garden uh, and uh, mm. watch out with the volunteers that they have something to do. And uh, that was our arrangement. And so then I stayed there first for the entire year. And then one year became two years and three years. And so in the end, uh, the owner, he moved away at one point because uh, he started a new project in a different province. And then I started renting that place. And then I met my wife, the, the woman who's now my wife. Um, so we ran the project together for a year. But then we ran into trouble again because we were still renting the land and it was draining our finances. And we were just on the treadmill, you know, running faster and faster just to stay in the same place. And the owner saw that we were doing good. So he was like, all right, but so now you got to pay the electricity yourself and now you got to pay the Internet bill yourself. And so it got to the point where we were like, it's not going to work. Let's just look for a for a piece of land. Uh that belongs to us, that we are able to afford. Uh, and so we looked around for some time and we were very lucky to find the piece of land that we currently live on. Um, it's bigger than the place in Kabi province in the south. It is uh, more than double the size. We have around uh, 3.2 acres. So there's like 1.3 hectares, I think. So it's not super big, but it's big enough if you live in the tropics. Um, so if we, if we wanted to feed ourselves, definitely possible in this amount of land with two people, probably even with more in the future. Uh, we are in uh, the eastern part of Thailand now. We are right next to the border to Cambodia, which is 30 kilometers away. We are in the foothills of the Cardamom Mountains, 300 meters above sea level. Uh, we have a very nice view from our gardens, the highest uh, the highest inhabited garden around. Um, and we grow fruit trees. We grow forest trees, we grow, well, we, we grow basically anything that we have any use for, whether that's food, whether that's fuel, firewood, whether that's fiber for cordage or whatever. Uh, like we're, we're trying to, maybe now I'm, I'm already getting into the, the next thing, but I'm just going to uh, explain right quick. So we're, we're trying to fulfill as much, as many needs as we can on this little piece of land that we have, all the while imitating the ecosystem that we are embedded in. So we look at the rainforest and we say, what does the rainforest do? And then we say, how can we do that here while at the same time having a higher density of species that are directly or indirectly useful for us and our situation here? And so, yeah, we I I'm about to get to get back to your original question, like how did it evolve? How did I become primitivist and all that? I did not be I did not become a, a primitivist until I was here in Thailand. I was uh, in the first year that I was here in 2014. I discovered by chance this weird article in Vice magazine. I haven't found it ever since, but I got to look again. So it was this dude who went to some anarcho-primitivist convention and then he wrote this article for Vice where he just made fun of it and he was like those guys are so stupid you wouldn't even believe it nah? he said yeah, I was on this convention and then I overheard this conversation between two people and they were saying like does it really matter if the earth is flat or round if you live in a small community of like 20 people and he laughed at them and was like haha you stupid flat earthers and I read it and I was like but does it though does it really matter what shape the world is if you live a life like that? 
And so mm-hmm. pretty soon after, I just a few days after, I don't remember exactly how I discovered Kaczynski, uh, Industrial Society and its future. And so I thought that that was just great. That was the best thing that I've ever read in my entire life uh, in terms of like political theory, if you want to call it that. Because it made sense. Right? It made sense that somebody is not trying to justify industry and not uh, not trying to, you know, act like factory jobs are all that desirable if we just, you know, if, if the factory is, earn, is, is owned by the workers. But that guy was just saying, no, it's uh, we got to get rid of basically everything, right? Because there is just no way that you can make that work. He talked about how terrible life and civilization is for the human spirit uh, that we need the power process and all that and at that time i was really into it i was really i was like yeah this makes perfect sense i'm i'm definitely gotta try to see what is in that direction and then i discovered john zertzan and i was reading all of his essays and so yeah that's basically how i started down that road i discovered daniel quinn very soon after and daniel quinn's books were the most influential thing and like really put me on the path um but at the same time as as i was getting more and more radical in that direction i also realized that the the project our last project in the south was not the right place because we were surrounded by palm oil plantations we were close to the main road so there was always trucks driving up and down they built this massive palm oil factory on the other side of the village that was really loud and people hated it. Uh, so it was, yeah, we felt like if we are looking, if we, if we, if we want to live on a new piece of land, uh, if we want to start our own thing, it should be far away. It should be way off yeah. the main road and just a little bit more quiet and a little bit more out, out there in nature, if you want to, if you want to say it like that. And it it worked. We are now right next to a very big uh, nature reserve that stretches until the the Cambodian border and beyond. And we have wild elephants who walk through our garden every now and then. We have hornbills who fly over our garden. We have monkeys who come and steal our fruit. Uh, That's the wrong way to express it. We don't own the fruit trees. They come here and they take their share and then they go back into the forest. So uh, we share our fruit with monkeys. and yeah, it's a lot more wild and a lot more, uh, yeah, a lot closer to an actual primitive lifestyle than our last project. So I guess we're on the right way. We live here for five years now, and we are we're satisfied with the the progress that we're making. Okay, so I wanna I wanna work backwards through this and kind of follow the threads kind of throughout the episode. So okay. when you were engaged with activism and radical thought early on both as a communist and later as a we'll just call it a left-wing anarchist what about those yes. ideas oh, two things about that why did mm-hmm. they not sit well with you what did you take from those that might you know influence you today because i think a lot of us around uncivilized come from left-wing backgrounds though we don't identify yes. as leftists we value what yeah. we learned from that time as leftists <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, so the, the thing that put me off a, a little bit was, um, you know, I was, Germans just love to argue about everything, especially about politics, so that we had, we were debating a lot of the time, like even in our free time, we would just have political debates every now and then, um, but also in school, and so there were always some arguments that the right-wing kind of people made or the conservatives made 
um, against communism, where I didn't really have an answer. I was not really satisfied with the answer that communist theory provided. No, like even the simple stuff, like who's going to sweep the roads, uh, who's going to, you know, go down in the mine shaft to dig the minerals. And I really struggled with uh, no, just just answering this question in a way that doesn't make me feel like I'm lying to myself, um, because those jobs just suck. However much you want to pay me, I'm not going down there and getting, you know, fucking up my lung, digging coal or stuff like that. No, it's just a little bit. Some some jobs are just. So I, I had that. That was one of the main problems. And then the other thing is because my my parents are quite environmentally conscious. I would I guess I would call it. Um, like we had only organic food our entire lives. Um, I didn't even I I didn't even play with plastic toys until I was like five. I had wooden toys and stuff like that. So my parents are a little bit go a little bit into that hippie direction. <clears throat> um. And then so another thing that I that I really had a problem with was the whole industry aspect, industry and mining and all that all that really destructive stuff, all that stuff, the oil spills. Uh, now, I, I thought, all right, so how is that going to change under mm-hmm. communism, under socialism? Like, how, who's going to stop that? Aren't we going to have the same problems eventually? Like, I understand capitalist greed. All right. They now they skirt a few safety regulations and it's all worse. But eventually uh those environmental problems would reappear under socialism right so that was one of the oh, that was some of the things where i was like all right that's probably probably not the whole truth um so there must be more to it or there must be some some you know more radical stuff to it i actually i i remember reading a little bit like the, the wikipedia page or whatever about pol pot in cambodia and I was like, so okay, so that's this communist who wants to go, who wants to go back to the Stone Age, and I thought that's interesting, but I didn't really. It was not like I, I was advocating what that guy was doing, and not, uh, calling, I learned you're not calling for the for the murder of people with glasses and. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that's a, a little bit too much in my opinion, but I, I learned later on that that guy is absolutely not a primitivist he's not even he's not even opposed to like progress and development he just wanted cambodia to develop by themselves without foreign influence but he still wanted you know high rises skyscrapers cars and airplanes and all that he just wanted to do it all by himself without without the help of any any other nation and especially not the us but we're getting we're getting sidetracked so the thing that I, I liked about socialism, I guess, was just this idea that humans are not completely terrible, that humans are not, you know, uh, just competing all the time. And, you know, this uh, the, the whole selfish gene thing that Richard Dawkins had going on, that we are all just looking out for our self-interest. And it's just this cruel world where you just got to, you know, dog eat dog just got to get your elbows out and just punch your way to the front. So that whole narrative never really appealed to me. And so I like the idea of just like solidarity in general, like uh, having having a different view of human nature as uh, animals who are very good at cooperating, who are very good at helping one another. And um, that being like more the default mode than this, weird capitalist idea of uh now we just compete with each other until one victor emerges and that guy is gonna rule everything now that just doesn't make sense to me it didn't at that time and still doesn't 
So I guess that was my takeaway from the whole leftism thing. Um, that I just I I couldn't I I could identify better with the the idea of human nature, um, and also with the general tendency of society that we say, all right, we do things together. We are all more or less equal. Eh? We no need to exploit anybody, no need to force anybody or tell anybody uh, that they should do something that they don't want to do. Yeah, so um, kind of like the the egalitarian impulse a little bit. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Very cool. Yeah, I, I would say I have something similar. It's it, it's funny because my turn from right wing to like anarchist was I went to community college and I took a sociology class and I was like, oh fuck, I'm an idiot. <laughs> no shit, I'm an idiot. And then I, I somehow I came across Kropotkin somehow and then I read Fight Club. Yeah. So like as soon as I read uh, Kropotkin, I was like, okay, yeah, I get this anarchist name. Then I read Fight Club. Yeah. I was like, yo, okay, yeah. like. He's ta- and then I like I was on the Wikipedia page. It said Tyler Durden's a primitivist. I was like, huh, that's cool. I like being outside. And then it, <laughs> and then it was a fucking straight downhill from there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can completely identify with that. I gotta say, right quick, we watched the movie Fight Club. We watched it obsessively. I've I've must have watched it like over twenty times in my life. Oh, we really so we we made a we made a cult around Fight Club because the message. Mm-hmm. Now, this anti-civilization message, Project Mayhem, just destroy everything and blow up the banks so that we can all get a, you know, a clean slate uh, and start again. I really, I really love that idea. And so that that influenced me a lot, by the way. I Usually I don't give Fight Club too much credit, but now I do because it definitely influenced me a lot in the earlier days when I was still a teenager and didn't discover Daniel Quinn yet. Mm-hmm. I want to say, by the way, I, I we just did a recording with Bjorn earlier, and and Daniel Quinn came up. I gotta say, yeah. like, I, I I liked Ishmael, right? And so I want to yeah. get to a question here. I loved Ishmael, but the story of B yeah. just hit so deeper to me, so much yes. more. It just yes. the the great forgetting in the illustration yes. and the the part where he talks about how we are storytelling animal. It just it was yes. so good. And I will say those are the only two, those are only two from Quinn that I've read is Ishmael and Story of B. But which one for you is yeah. the most impactful? I'm 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 I have goosebumps right now on my whole body because it was the exact same thing for me. So I I also I read the Story of B first, and it's still I think the most powerful book of the trilogy. I read the entire mm-hmm. trilogy, and then I also read Beyond Civilization and a few other of his like less less famous books. But uh, yeah. The story of B is the absolute best book. And so the way that I discovered it is my second year in Thailand, my little brother joined me on the farm because he also just finished school and he didn't really know what to do. So I was like, uh, come here and let's eat bananas together and bathe in the pond. Uh, and he joined and he stayed there for almost a year. And in the end, he got he really got into Buddhism and Vipassana meditation kind of thing. So he went to live in a monastery for a few months and shaved his head and his eyebrows. And uh, now he was living with the monks. And uh, during that time, he was in this forest monastery because in Thailand, you have a very rich forest tradition, especially in the north and northeast, where monasteries are really in the jungle and without electricity. And they are they take the teachings of the Buddha very literally i guess and i'm not i'm not a buddhist i have to say that from 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 the beginning on i'm i'm not a buddhist uh but i think that there is less and 
less harmful versions of it and more harmful versions of it. And so the forest tradition is definitely a less harmful version of Buddhism. And so in this monastery, there was this library. And in this library, there was the book, The Story of Bee by Daniel Quinn. And so another guy was also staying at that monastery, recommended it to my brother. And he, he told this little story. There was this Christian dude, Westerner, who brought his kid into the monastery to learn meditation. And so this guy who recommended the book to my little brother recommended the book to the Christian guy. And the Christian guy read it overnight. And in the morning he came, he threw it on the ground and he took his son and he said, we're leaving. No, this is an evil place because it was too much for him. No? Because the, the story mm. of B is all about the Antichrist and no, it, it really gets into It follows yeah. the perspective of the, he's a, is he a Jesuit? I know he's Catholic. I think he's a Jesuit, right? Because I don't even B, remember. I think because I, I literally remember this because I grew up Catholic and I found it so funny. Because yeah. B, okay. B, or not B, but the main character is literally yeah. sent there as a Catholic, like, oh, you need to investigate the Antichrist. And then he's convinced. Yes. So it'd be really funny as a yes. Christian reading that and be like, uh-oh. Yes. Yeah. So it was it was too much for this dude who brought his son into this monastery. So he left and he was really angry. And this story alone made my brother really curious. And he was like, wow, there must be one hell of a book then. And so he read it and then he came back uh, from his from his time in the monastery. And I got him from the bus station. And one of the first things he said is, Dave, you got to read this book, man. It's so incredible. And so I read it and I now it was like. I was like in a in a trance for a few weeks when I was working through those book through those books. I read uh, the story of B, then I read Ishmael, then I read my Ishmael, then I read them all again, and then I took notes as well and filled like three notebooks with all of the stuff that I wanted to write down. So hugely influ influential, and the best by by a large margin is the story of B, definitely. Gotcha. So I guess the next part I want to talk to you about is that the original farm. How did you yeah. come across it? It was it run by Europeans? Was it run by people? Uh, high oh, people no, it, I guess? it was. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, it it was a small family. Um, uh, all Thai. Like the the guy who the the father the husband. Uh, he is. He actually has 100% Chinese genetics, um, but he he was born in Thailand and his parents were born in Thailand. So there's a huge Chinese community in Thailand, and so he's Thai Chinese, I guess. Um, they have their own. Uh, now they they are a little bit separate from the like the general Thai population. Uh, they have their mm -hmm. own rituals and they have their own belief. Uh, they have their own. Now they, his parents still speak Chinese as well. And so his wife was from Bangkok, um, and they had two 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 small daughters at that time, which was really nice to have kids around because um, yeah, kids are great, and especially at that age, uh, and it's such a great experience, you know, for kids to be out on that farm and doing doing that stuff, you know, living hand to mouth, going out and collecting some vegetables and making food with them. So um it was it was a really really nice time to have this family around and uh the family they accepted volunteers a lot during the beginning during the first few years um they there is this project called woof i don't know how to pronounce it worldwide opportunities on organic farms that's what it stands for and I was so gonna say, you can... I, that does sound familiar that's what i was going to ask is if that's how you found the farm exactly i, I yeah. know people that have done similar things have kind of like yes i don't know what i'm gonna do so i'll just go work on an organic farm 
Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I did. I had no idea what, what to do, so I was just all right uh, with this idea in mind uh, that we we want to get away from the entire system and stuff like that. I was like, all right, so I gotta start with the basic needs, I guess. So food production and all that, you know, building shelter. And so it just seemed the right thing to do. And with Wolf, it's pretty straightforward. You sign up and you can connect directly to the farms. And the the owner of that farm, I got to tell right quick, he used to be a programmer in Bangkok. And so he got so fed up with this life in the city, especially with two young daughters. And he he said, you know, he was stuck in traffic at least three hours every day. And it was nah, just sitting there and just this intense rage and frustration that you feel to be in the situation and you cannot really do anything at all. You're just stuck there wasting your time and for what? And so, yeah, that's why he got out of the city and started this project. Um, mm. And it was it was it was cool because they could speak uh, English pretty good. Nah? You, most most people here in Thailand, they don't they don't speak very good English, I guess, um, because we're going to talk about that later. Maybe um, because Thailand was never colonized officially. So in Malaysia, you had the British. Uh, that forced people to learn their language, but here in Thailand there was no such thing, and so yeah, it, it the people don't don't really speak that well in general. Um, it's changing, obviously, but so it was nice in the beginning to have a family where you could communicate with everybody, and also for me, learning the language was very easy. Living with that family, the Thai language. Mm. Okay, very cool. And so, were you convinced? of the I did for leopard word the power or the rationale of permaculture by the time you would move there because of that organic upbringing or were you not as invested and then by your immersion in those projects were you convinced of it um that is a good question i i always tended in that direction i guess you know uh like, for example, when we had those internships that we had to do for school, uh, well, once I worked in an organic farm, which I really loved. Another time I worked in the botanical garden in Munich, which I also really enjoyed. So I always had this kind of this tendency to uh, nah, do something with plants, to do something outside. Uh, and if it is if it involves food, then it's also really great because, you know, growing up with uh, grandparents who have like fruit orchards and farms uh, the greatest childhood memories were just eating as much fruit as you want you know just up on that cherry tree and just eating and eating and eating until you're really full now uh, so that was that is kind of where i'm coming from uh, i i used to say as a, as a child if i could climb a tree every day you know if i could eat fruit every day as much as i want then that's all i want for life really and so I'm pretty close to that now. So probably my upbringing had something to do with it. Uh, very likely it had something to do with it. But so even when I was still in Germany, I never heard of permaculture before. There was a new concept for me. And so uh, it, it made a lot of sense, permaculture in and of itself. Like, do do, do you want to get into the whole permaculture discussion now? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's, we're, we're heating up to that, I guess, then. Yeah, so... How does permaculture yes. relate to your worldview in primitivism in particular? Because I know it's weird. Some primitivists kind of get this very like, oh, we can't, we shouldn't even talk about it because it doesn't matter. It's no different than agriculture. Yes. There's no value. Yes, yes. So what is your yeah. relationship yeah. to that kind of, to that? Well, on that particular uh 
I, I, I strongly disagree that it's the same as agriculture or pretty much the same. So the thing is also let's let's look at it from a you know from a primitivist perspective. If you are a primitivist and you want to become more of a primitivist in your actual life, not just in your ideas and books that you read, what are you going to do? You know, you cannot just walk into a national park and and try to survive there. It's just not going to work, you know. Being an actual hunter, hunter gatherer, you need to grow up like that. You need to, to you know, to tap into that wisdom of countless generations. Now, stories being told by the campfire every night of how to read tracks, how to you know, uh, animal behavior and all that thing. And if you don't have that, it's really difficult to to get that. It takes a long time. Like some of the rewilding folks are getting pretty close, and some of them are really good. Um, but it's not. It's you cannot just cut ties and walk into the forest. It's not going to happen. So it was. It was obvious that if I want to be as much of a primitivist as I wanted, permaculture was definitely needed. It was a necessary evil, if you want to call it that. Like because it's a transition, right? Uh, you 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 try to get used to a certain kind of lifestyle, and it's like. Um, nah, it's it's one step along the way for me, actually. And I think that it is a very important step. And I, I do always push back when people say, oh, permaculture is uh, not really a solution. Or now nah, there is a bunch of criticism about permaculture. But speaking about permaculture right quick, I got to say one, one thing that we always say to our volunteers here is that permaculture is more than just neat rows of vegetables, right? So mm -hmm. permaculture itself is not just a background garden where you grow stuff, right? Sometimes I see that online on permaculture forums where there's like suburban people who post a picture of their backyard and they're like, how do I permaculture here? What can I do to transform this into a permaculture? And uh, I don't want to talk bad about them because somehow it's better than doing nothing. But that's not really the point of permaculture, right? What you're trying to do in that situation is you're trying to apply certain permacultural techniques but you're not trying to create a permaculture now a permaculture is um if i would just go if i remember it right you know i'm bad with just remembering stuff word by word but a permaculture is something like an 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 a system that produces food while mimicking natural ecosystems whatever natural ecosystem you find in your area right um, and so the guy who, like, I don't, I don't want to say invented it, but the guy who wrote the first real book on permaculture and called it that, Bill Mollison, people call him the father of permaculture or the founder. Um, he says in the introduction of this book, Permaculture One, a designer's manual, he says that permaculture is basically just indigenous horticulture. It's just indigenous techniques repackaged, uh, for an audience that is more modern, right? So in permaculture, you have, for example, you have different zones. So, so zone one is right around your house where you have the kitchen herbs, the stuff that you use every day. Zone two is the ones that need a little bit less care, but you still use them on a daily basis. Now, so zone three, there you have the shrubs and the bushes and maybe some of the fruit trees. Zone four is where you have your fruit trees and your forest trees. And zone five optimally should be wilderness. So that is included into the very idea of permaculture, that there is wilderness, uh, wild nature on the outside. And uh, you kind of try to find your place within that and try to imitate it as good as possible. 
right? So it's not like permaculture is just another way of doing agriculture, right? I have a, a big problem with the term agriculture, actually, because sometimes people say like, what we're doing is agriculture, and it, it's not, right? If we go, if we talk about the etymology of the word, agriculture comes from the Latin word aga, which means field. Horticulture comes from the word uh, hortus, which means garden. So that's already a big difference, right? Uh, a field and a garden are di different on the scale, right? A field is usually much larger than a garden. And a field is also more... Um, how to say that there is it's usually a monoculture right there's usually just one or two crops growing and really a lot of them whereas in the garden you have a much greater diversity uh, and so i prefer the term horticulture if you want to use uh, a term that people know permaculture itself just means permanent agriculture he called it permanent agriculture i have a problem with the term agriculture so i call it permanent horticulture or just a permanent way to cultivate things right and because agriculture leads to a certain kind of culture, horticulture also leads to a certain kind of culture, and permaculture, like the way that you cultivate food, usually has a pretty strong influence on the society that you end up finding yourself in. And so the, the goal of permaculture is just to try to create a way of cultivating food that is sustainable in the truest uh, meaning of the term, like that could that is permanent, that could exist forever, environmental conditions permitted, and at the same time also founding a culture around this way of food cultivation that is also sustainable, that can also survive, that can also stay like that. Yeah? So one, one of the main criticisms that I get uh, about permaculture, and again, I completely understand it. I, I, I do think that those people have a good point and we need to address it. So one thing that people say a lot about permaculture is it's it's only for white people, you know, it's just this thing that white middle class people do, uh, and therefore it's not really a solution. Yeah? Um, and so I get it because uh, now I'm white, I'm middle class, I'm from Europe, I was middle class. Um, and so, but the thing is that that's kind of whom permaculture was developed for, right? I mean, Bill Mollison, he didn't say, how, how do I invent a new way of gardening that, uh, that excludes all black people? But he just said, I am living in Australia. Most of the people in Australia right now are white. Uh, most of the people, nah, it's a developed country. Most of the people have a certain mindset. They have this mechanistic view of nature, for example. So he didn't make it about race or skin color and i don't think it is about race or skin color because permaculture is not about your skin color permaculture is about your your background your economic background your social background so permaculture is more for people who come from relatively wealthy social environments i would guess i mean if, you, if you're on the global scale relatively wealthy right. and uh, people uh, people who who probably have some kind of education uh now there's a lot of people who have degrees who start permaculture actually so so you have this certain kind of mindset and so this entire demographic of people right so some countries are just predominantly like that right so the united states much of europe you just have white people you just have a lot of middle class people and you just have a certain group né? and so permaculture was mostly developed to you know to address this group and i don't even think that there is anything wrong with that per se because permaculture is for 
is basically is a technique for the most alienated urbanites in developed nations, right? The people who have no tradition, who have no no traditional way of farming, no, who have no culture that dates back for many millennia. No? So it is like uh, in one of the essays that I have on my blog, I call people like that ghost without a shrine. So I used to be a ghost without a shrine, you know, just drifting around, not really knowing mm. what is happening, not really knowing what to do. And uh, permaculture is for people like that. Yeah? So permaculture is definitely like if I would think about uh, let's just take Thailand because that's where I'm sitting right now. Do do Thai people need permaculture? I'm not sure. Yeah? People would probably benefit from a lot of the techniques. But if you are in Thailand, you have all those hill tribes right up north and those hill tribes, they do shifting cultivation which is in its original form, a very sustainable form of doing farming. Um, and so the hill tribes don't need permaculture because what they are doing is already permaculture. That is one example of permaculture, right? That, that's what Bill Mollison took as an inspiration. Those indigenous societies around the world that cultivate some of their own food, uh, sometimes a lot of their own food, almost all of their own food, but in a way that doesn't destroy the environment in the long term. And so he just tried to codify this traditional knowledge and um, not, not codify is maybe not the right term, but just make this knowledge accessible for somebody who grew up in a spiritually devoid culture where you cannot just say that's how the spirits want, want, want those, the spirits of those plants like to grow together, but you got to put it in a more scientific way so that people believe it. And so that's what he did. He just repackaged um, indigenous techniques of doing horticulture for people who are not indigenous. And I don't think that's bad, right? I, I think that's a step in the good direction. I mean, the people who need it the most are probably the people from a middle-class background in the developed nations, right? Uh, and so if permaculture teaches those people to go back to the land, you know, to reconnect with your land, to try to understand the land, to not impose your will and just till plow up the whole thing and then just plant whatever you like to eat but work together with it ask nature around here what does he want well what is what what is the goal of the environment here and how can i aid this goal and how, how can i make my own goals align with the goals of the environment at large you know it's a lot about experimenting um about working working with the land as i said and to uh, kind of regain or rediscover all this cultural knowledge that was lost. Right? Because we Europeans and uh, extending to the most of the North Americans that descend from settlers, we don't have those those techniques that people here in Southeast Asia still have or in the Amazon rainforest, right? So uh, we don't have... Uh, ancestors where we say, oh yeah, I descend from this and that tribe and they were living really sustainably and treaded lightly on the land and this is how they lived. We simply don't know. I don't know how the hunter-gatherers of Germany called themselves, right? So even if you talk about the Germanic tribes, those were not hunter-gatherers. No? Those were, they were pretty civilized already in some aspects, right? So and they were uh, warrior, they were like warrior exactly. Iron Age people, right? They're not the beacon exactly. of European egalitarianism. Yes, yes, and so permaculture is trying. In my in my in my view, it is an attempt to kind of recreate cultures that resemble uh, indigenous societies a little bit more, 
right? For for people who mm-hmm. don't have any background whatsoever. And I think that's a noble goal. I think that's the right uh, the right thing to do, right? Uh, and I, 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 do, I do know that most of the projects are not like that. And most of the projects, like a lot of permaculturalists, wouldn't agree with many of the things that I just said. But this is my own interpretation. This is my own reading of the scripture, if you want. Um, and that's my opinion, right? I, I don't think that permaculture in and of itself is super biased or should be, you know, discharted from the beginning on because it's not a solution or whatever. I think that it's a good idea. And I think for, for me personally, um, it I, I, I couldn't have done it without permaculture. It was the it was a guideline, you know, because you have all those you have the books with the techniques that give you some ideas of how to work with your land. And so I don't have anything against permaculture, but I do understand people who criticize because I also criticize a lot of permaculture projects out there. We are doing, you, you talked about it in the introduction. We, we, we call our approach, we call it primitive permaculture. Um, and so that's kind of where we are. We, we try to do things a little bit more radically, I guess, and more like back to the roots. Uh, we, we try this thing that I talked about with the zones. Um, we try to uh, include Zone Five, the wilderness, like to 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 move it further and further closer to our home, so that basically yeah, in the end we have it. so trying to take exactly. the untamed wildness and moving it inwards because it's co-centric exactly. circles, right? So five is the outside yes. zone zero. You're trying to move it more and more in. Exactly. So that in okay. the end, we will have less zones and wilderness will be closer to home right around mm-hmm. us, basically. Mm-hmm. So out of curiosity, the way yeah. I'm kind of seeing it, well, two things. First thing is the way you're describing the relationship between permaculture and indigenous horticulture, right? Is yeah. To me, it's, it's almost similar to the way people, some people describe primitivism and its relationship to indigenous resistance and indigenous life ways. That, yeah, it's yeah. not truly it's not like indigenous people would not have called themselves anarcho-primitivists right it's not exactly. a system, but we it is influenced from the wisdom of historic and contemporary indigenous peoples yes exactly okay that is very very, cool. very true yeah because uh i'm not sure if you ever listened to the episodes we did with malatha from the fnu but he always makes a joke. So he, he has this tendency, he calls himself an indigenous autonomist. And when I first described okay. anarcho-primitivism to it, he's like, that's just the white man's indigenous autonomism. <laughs> <laughs> it is though, right? It really is though. That's a very nice comparison. Yeah, so I just found that interesting. And then yeah. the other thing, the other thing is, I guess... Um, shit, Kevin, you might have to cut this because I totally just had a brain fart. Oh, fuck. Oh, I just had it. I think I just lost it. Oh, here we go. So, how would you describe the... the, the A lot of people get caught up in the idea of wildness. To you, how do you define something that is wild versus something that is, like, controlled or domesticated? And how does that influence your practice of permaculture? Wow. You're not holding back, huh? That's a no. that's a massive question. So I I do I do think that the concept that we have of wilderness, like in Western cultures or in developed cultures in general, is pretty flawed, 
because of the same reasons you probably talk about this with every other guest on your show um now that people who came to the americas in the beginning they're like oh this untamed wilderness whereas mm -hmm. in reality that was land that was stewarded over countless generations by indigenous people to produce this kind of diversity that the people encountered so i do think that the wilderness idea is a little bit flawed in some contexts And not so much in other contexts, right? You you probably know there was this very famous study uh, that concluded a little bit um, euphemistically, I would say, that the Amazon rainforest is a giant man-made food forest, and that's nonsense. Yeah, it's not a it's not a, a giant food forest, right? There is most by far most of the species are wild jungle trees, and nobody planted them, but they do have a point because you have an extraordinary high abundance or high, high occurrence of fruit trees, nut trees, and all kinds of other plants that are useful for humans in areas that were inhabited by people versus areas that were relatively uninhabited by humans most of the time, right? So humans definitely do influence the environment. That's not even uh, an argument. Now people, people did that over the entire Stone Age probably. Um, you totally took that was gonna be one of my next questions is kind of the food got, yeah. because it's interesting yeah they didn't plant the trees but you know it's kind of like a lot of hunter gatherers this idea they don't select for things around them particularly plant life mm. is silly that they're these just this passive actors because you know yeah. there's a whole amazonian dark earth what is called terra yeah yeah terra preta del like indio yes yeah yeah yes so i wanted maybe do you want to touch on that specifically is to you is that a horticultural practice or is there something to be distinguished there um so i'm i'm not really sure who exactly was behind those uh those those soils terra preta del indio in in the amazon so i it was very likely pretty large scale agricultural societies Yeah. As well as some horticultural societies, right? So you have some some people living in larger settlements and planting corn and all that stuff. And then you have other people who do like swiddening, uh, which is like shifting cultivation. Some people call it slash and burn and just move around a lot. Um, what we're doing here is we're trying to recreate something like Terra Preta uh, because it's the only soil known to mankind that is able to regenerate itself so you can grow crop after crop after crop and there's just so much life and so much diversity in the soil that you don't even need any additional inputs, right? So the first, the conquistadores, they encountered those fields and they, they described it. They said like there was corn growing that was as high as a man on a horse. And that's pretty damn impressive. Like even with chemical fertilizers, I've never seen corn that high. And even if they like exaggerated a little bit, it still means that they were doing like their soil was pretty good, right? And so people now, they, they go there and they take samples and they study that soil. They say probably human manure, meaning human shit composted, probably played a big role. Um, pottery, shards, and, you know, just household waste over very, very long periods. Um, and so it's definitely something that we experiment ourselves with here. Um, but maybe back to the wild versus domesticated it's it's not it's definitely not a binary it's definitely not like you can draw a line and can say those people those plants those cultures those animals are domesticated and those are wild but it's like a spectrum and usually people or cultures or whatever you want fall somewhere 
in between those extremes, right? With some being very close to either end of this of the spectrum. Né? So the jungle in Southeast Asia used to be pretty damn wild, pretty damn, uh, yeah, really untamed. Like even the, the hunter-gatherers that we have here, I have to say right quick because I forgot to say it in the beginning, we live on land, on stolen land, that originally belonged to the Chong, which are the indigenous people of our area here. But sadly, uh, they've under they've underwent like what what Daniel Quinn calls cultural collapse, basically. So there is not much left of their culture. Um, there is very very few people who still speak the language, um, and that's a very very sad story in and of itself. But so we actually we do have indigenous people here. Um, but so the hunter-gatherers that we have here in Thailand, we had the Malabri in the past. They were living up north and in the northeast. They've been settled for decades already, sadly, uh, because they always crossed the border to Laos. And people at that time didn't like it. They say you need a passport and all that and a visa. You cannot just run over the border whenever you like it. So the government built them some, you know, some concrete boxes and gave them rice vodka. And that's what they do all day now. But we still have the money in the south of Thailand, who are still living in the forest, yes, but it's also getting really difficult, right? Because the forest is getting smaller and smaller. They have less and less habitat. They have less and less opportunities to hunt. So they are more and more dependent on government handouts and like fucking ramen noodles and stuff like that that people bring them. So that's a, a whole different story that is very, it's a very sad story to see that happening right in front of your doorstep, basically. But so um, the landscape in Thailand traditionally before civilization was really wild, was really undomesticated. We did have, uh, or we still do have, uh, a lot of people who are on the spectrum, I guess, delayed return hunter-gatherers or even mm. like horticultural societies. We have now the very famous, the people call them the hill tribes. Uh, we have the Karen, the Hmong the Lisu, the Lahu, the Aka, the Shan, the Yao, uh, who else, the Palong. Uh, so we have, and, and probably a few other smaller groups that I just forgot, but uh, we, we do have delayed return hunter-gatherers um, who did change the landscape. Um, so yeah, what, what, I, what do I want to say about this? I would say that it is really important to always remember that it is a spectrum and that uh, nah, it's not like, oh, uh, I, I'm domesticated now and so I want to be wild. And that is the goal, to do that switch from domesticated to wild. Nah? But it's a process mm -hmm. and uh, you got to take it at your own speed, right? You, you cannot rush it, otherwise uh, there's other dangers. Um, and yeah, what, what else do I want to say? I think that's it. What else do I have to say about it? <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's really interesting because I think... I find when I read old primitivist stuff, they just talk about wildness in this abstract Western centric way that it's like almost inhuman. Like there can't be humans yeah. almost when it's, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's, we talk about like, yes. well, humans need to be interacting with their environment. We're not out here trying yes. to be misanthropic. It's, you know, exterminationists. Yeah. Right? We're not full pot. Yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah, I, I definitely, I agree. And I, this is, it's the whole conservationist, ideal right there is the human world and then there's the natural world and never the twain shall meet or whatever however they want to put it 
Um, but the the thing is, there is like I think in my in my interpretation of the permacultural teachings, it's not like Zone Five excludes the humans, but Zone Five is simply the zone in which we do as little as possible. We can go there, we can spend our days there, we can spend our weekends there, we can live there if we want to, but we don't necessarily change so much about the landscape we harvest animals now we harvest wild stuff that we want to use but it's not like we would start a garden out there somewhere because that's what you do around your house already right so it's it's not like a it's it's not it doesn't follow this conservationist ideal of all right you have the zone around your houses and there's the human that's where the humans live and then the other thing is something else entirely and i think that's another thing that i forgot to say uh i think it's very important to remember that many if not most indigenous societies or at least all the indigenous societies that i've read about they don't have this differentiation between nature and not nature right so because it's like asking a fish about water right so what is nature for them so you get out of your hut and you walk two meters to the border of the clearing, and then that is nature, and that is somehow a different world to the 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 world that is two meters behind you. Like it doesn't really make any sense to them, so they don't have this yeah. uh, differentiation to begin with of saying this is nature and this is artificial, right? It just doesn't make sense to them. And I think that this is something that we should uh, that we can learn a great lesson from, that we can learn uh, that uh, that we should also try to implement in our lives and say, all right, so what about we don't make this differentiation? Uh, what about we think about the fact that uh, culture originally always arises from the land, right? You have people who hunt mammoths, for example, have a very different culture than people who hunt bison, for example, uh, or people right. who it's eat mostly not- tubers. Yeah, it's all about the material base, right? Because if you're exactly. if you're having to if you're having to exert yourself over long distances for prey versus exactly. if you can be, I mean, compare hunter gatherer, a nomadic hunter gatherer, to a sedentary the Pacific Northwest in the United States. I don't know how familiar you yeah. are with the Pacific Northwest, but these are sedentary, highly complex hunter gatherers that can do so. Not only yeah. are the environments themselves rich, but because of fishing. The role of fishing yeah. in sedentism is immense. Yeah, yeah. I, I do know a little bit about the Pacific Northwesterners, uh, the various tribes that used to live there. And uh, we, we we thought about, like, we, we want to talk about this topic as well, right? Because I'm kind of like uh, in the middle somewhere. I listened to a lot of the episodes that you guys did in the last few months. And there was this reoccurring theme. Um uh, that I saw in several of the interviews. Uh, you had an interview with Jessica about her great new book. Um, mm-hmm. You talked about it with Jamie as well. Um, and I don't know. I don't want to like pick a fight because those people, I agree with them pretty much on everything. And I, I know Jessica, for example, I know her for, for quite some time already. Uh, she knows what we're doing here. So I have a lot of respect for what she's doing. Um, but so the the thing that I have a little bit of a problem with is this thing that um, many times in primitivist circles you have now you talk about immediate return hunter gatherer and you talk about delayed return or the complex hunter gatherers and then people say things like complex hunter gatherers they hoard food and they accumulate power and prestige and what else they control the food supply and so they make it seem like 
that the delayed return hunter gatherers they're already like they're halfway there to civilization or at least like a big step removed from like the pure state of blissful uh, immediate return hunter gatherer existence and i do say that i understand it because uh you guys you have the pacific northwesterners right in front of your doorstep right so that is definitely i understand where people say all right that would that would not be a society that i would like to live in uh no because as far as i remember they even had slavery right yes yeah which is to me i yeah. will say this is i have historically defined civilization as class society right that's like to me that's the base mm -hmm. is the class society okay. right and then of course the urbanization the cities that Derek Jensen talks about um but then yes. it gets weird because then it's like here is a hunter-gatherer society right that it's it's sedentary mm -hmm. like yeah. they have classes right they have slaves yeah. and non-slaves and that gets really yeah well it kind of yeah. muddies the water a little bit huh exactly it really does and i think that uh it is unfortunate that people in the united states have mostly those examples to draw from because uh while you do have a point with a bunch of stuff about pacific northwesterners it is not like that at all in southeast asia in southeast asia you have delayed return hunter gatherers you have uh societies where horticulture is where they get most of their calories from and they do they also do a little bit of hunting and gathering but not that much um and they are not like the pacific northwesterners at least not all of them right so it is also as so many other things in this world um it's a spectrum right you so you i i wouldn't necessarily say like delayed return hunter gatherers are already like they they are on the wrong path or stuff like that because simply right in front of my doorstep i have uh delayed return hunter gatherers who uh don't have dominance hierarchies at all who don't have slavery who don't who tread very lightly on the environment i mean that's even the case with the pacific northwesterners i don't think that they destroyed the environment uh otherwise we would know about it they harvested a lot of salmon not because they were living right next to those rivers with the big salmon runs but who can blame them for it if i would live there i would do the exact same thing right it's right. just it's the resources like there yeah. we, we shouldn't be yeah. making like a moral like condemnation of these people particularly and it's one of those it's like in the concepts of colonialism why should i be critiquing yeah. them you know yeah. yeah yes and so talking a little bit more about the delayed return societies that we have here uh, calling them hunter-gatherers or horticulturalists, I think, misses the point a little bit because uh, when we talk about hill tribes or about any kind of society, whether hunter-gatherer or horticulturalist or anything in between, here in Southeast Asia, I got a remark right quick that we're talking about pre-World War II because after World War II, uh, the state expanded its reach. They built roads everywhere. They had suddenly a lot of cars and they built bridges. And so they reached all of those people who were relatively isolated before. 
Um, and so it changed very fast. It was it was a very turbulent time in Southeast Asia in you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, not only because of Vietnam, but because all kinds of stuff like that was happening throughout the region, right? The the hill tribes, they, they call themselves the Hmong. They had a rebellion which was just brutally put down by the Thai state, by the Thai government. Now they threw, they mm-hmm. shot uh, artillery in the jungle and bombed them with napalm that they got from their Yankee friends. And Jesus. so, uh, what yeah, time, it was, what it was pretty period is this? Is this roughly the same time as the other, you know, the Vietnam war and stuff? Yeah. Or is this, it was, or is it exactly. time? It was in the 19, uh, this, this, uh, this rebellion by the Hmong that I'm talking about, this just one particular case, right? There was a lot going on at that time, but that was in the sixties. So at the same time you had the, the uh, Red Khmer taking over Cambodia, roughly a little later. You had Vietnam going on. So it was all over Southeast Asia. You had this big struggle, communism versus capitalism. Uh, communism was the big threat. And so Thailand was kind of, uh, now there were, there were military bases here from the United States Army because they, yeah, they used Thailand as a base for their soldiers and their operations. And so Thailand was always on more on the side of the U.S., and more anti-communist, which is, uh, it's, a, it's a whole different story. I could probably talk about hours, if not ages, just about what happened during that time and how bad it was and how it affects society these days. Um, but so the, my point is that after the Second World War, a lot of things changed for hunter-gatherers and for horticulturalists in the area. They got forced more and more um now under the umbrella of the government uh now consensus and stuff like that people had to start paying more taxes and nowadays i'm i'm really it's unfortunate to know that it happened like that and i don't really feel good saying it but many of the hill tribes they grow uh corn gmo corn many times for animal feeding Mm. operations these days so they they do the i don't want to call it traditional but they do like they do slash and burn, and then they plant corn. And then once they harvest the corn, they just burn the fields again. And so it's not how it used to be. So I I just want to make clear right quick that whenever I'm talking about hunter-gatherers or delayed return societies, horticulturalists, I'm usually talking about the time before the Second World War, even for the hunter-gatherers here in Thailand, because it just changed so much with this huge wave of progress and development that was unleashed onto this culture uh, by mostly influence from the United States. 